Luke chapter 2, and we begin our reading there. We'll commence our reading there at verse 7. Hear now the word of our God. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great, sorry, glad, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And there suddenly was the angel of a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go in even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad of the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this morning. We come in the 21st verse of Luke chapter 2 to a moment that seldom do we give much attention to. In fact, really, in the entirety of the narrative accounts given to us both in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, This moment is the one that's largely eclipsed. In chapter 2, verse 21 of Luke's Gospel, we have the only record of the circumcision of Christ. The only record. And in one sense, perhaps that's why we neglect it. We have only, out of all the four Gospels, one account that shows us this moment. It takes us to that moment whenever Christ has put upon him the sign and seal the initiatory sacrament of the Old Covenant. But perhaps that's not the only reason why this moment is largely neglected. There's a sense, of course, in which this moment is one of the most foreign moments to us. We are largely Gentiles, raised by Gentiles, raised in Gentile lands, and largely removed from circumcision. Maybe not from the physical aspects, but certainly from the religious aspects. We are a people to whom this moment is quite foreign. And so, we are quite tempted and easily succumb to that temptation to simply overlook it. And even if we do give any mind to it, I think perhaps one of the most simplest ways to understand this text is simply to quote back at it several scriptures that are well known unto us. If we're asked, why is it that Christ here is circumcised? Well, we respond by simply saying that the Apostle tells us plainly. 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Christ was sent, of course, to fulfill all righteousness. Christ himself tells us, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so we say that's why he was circumcised. And then we hastily move on. Perhaps that's one other reason why we look over this text. Friend, I think one of the primary reasons, if not the fundamental reason, why this text receives so little attention, and I think all of us would quickly agree, it's largely because we are a people who do not think carefully when it comes to the scriptures. We are not a people who think deeply anymore when it comes to the things of God. We're wise and unrighteousness. We're a people who will expend all kinds of mental energy to contemplate our sin. Or things that would distract us. But when it comes to the things of God, we are so slow, so dull of hearing. And perhaps, friend, that's why this moment, maybe over every other reason, is so foreign to us, so little regarded. But I trust that as we look at this text, just this 21st verse of Luke 2, we'll see that this is something that we neglect only to our incalculable loss. This is a profound moment in the history of humanity. A profound moment that I hope we'll find is something for which we'll have ample reason to praise God, but also a profound moment that would tender to us great spiritual profit, hold out to us great grace. And for that, I want us to look at this text over the course of two Lord's days. I want us to see this text with as much depth as we might possibly could imagine. Um, Of course, the fullness of God's word goes beyond what we might grasp. But because this moment is so neglected, and also I believe this moment is so profound, I believe it's well worth our time. And so as we begin, I want you to notice just two very basic things about the text. We're told the primary event is the circumcision of Christ. The time had come. Luke tells us very plainly this time was the eighth day, just according to the law. Luke is emphasizing, of course, something that would have been assumed by any other Jewish reader. If Luke is writing about a circumcision, it was assumed it would take place on the eighth day. But Luke adds for us this detail, just to remind us, of course, that this is lawfully done. What's striking is, of course, as you look at Luke's gospel, not only is this a circumcision, but it's the second circumcision that we come to. The first circumcision was that of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And now he takes us, as he did with John, from the birth of the man who was prophesied to his circumcision and also to his naming. And that's the second thing that we have in the text. This is the first occasion that we have, the only occasion we have in Luke's gospel, of the naming of Christ. You have, of course, the prophecy given by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1 that this would be his name. Uh, But here in Luke 2, the name is actually applied. And Luke tells us it was at the moment of his circumcision that Jesus is called by his name. And, friend, as you look back to chapter 1, this parallel, of course, stands also with John. John was named John, of course, the day of his circumcision as well. And in one sense, I said this to you many months ago now, it seems, but this was customary. Customary not only from ancient Jewish tradition, but customary from the scriptures itself. Uh, You remember, as we read from Genesis 17, uh, that's, of course, whenever Abraham and Sarai are renamed. It is at the institution of circumcision that the new names are applied. And so we have that in our text. 
And so verse 21 stands out with, without very much difficulty. It's an event that's quite straightforward. But as we look at this, I want you to note, first of all, friend, as we've noticed this throughout the Gospels, nothing here should we assume is extraneous. Every detail that the inspired historian provides for us is crucial to us. There is a divine author that stands behind the text. Luke tells us this from the very beginning. Luke tells us that he's had perfect understanding of all things. Our translations read from the very first. As I told you when we came to Luke 1 beforehand, this text really is saying that Luke is saying these things came from above. What he writes, he writes as God's penman. And so, friend, like all of Scripture, we can say here that revelation came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, speaking as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, friend, even this text fits under that category, and the details that we have in verse 21 fits under those descriptions that you have in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is given, says the Apostle. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You see, friend, though we're so quick to overlook this text, this is the inspired word of God. And the detail that we're given here is not extraneous. It is useful to us. But also, it's important for us to recognize that if we're paying attention to what the Gospel writer is telling us, this is a very significant moment. I mean, friend, note just the naming of John here. As John is given to us in the text, we're told that this forerunner is really emblematic of the fact that God has been gracious. That's what John means. And so from the very first of Luke's Gospel, we're really instructed to think that all that is to come is going to show us, one token after another, that God has been gracious to His people. That's how the Gospel begins. But then, friend, note how the Gospel continues. Here, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, the Gospel writer tells us also what Mary says in response to these things. She says, He hath holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Know what, know what Mary is saying. She's saying that in this moment I see the covenant promises fulfilled. As I look to Christ as He is coming, I see in Him the fulfillment of all the anticipation of all those who have gone before. And Luke doesn't stop there. He also gives us Zacharias. Know what he says here. Christ is sent to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before Him all the days of our life. Friend, I'm reading over those things to you just to make a very simple point. When you come to Luke 2.21, the Gospel writer, writer under inspiration of God's Spirit has been preparing us to see some very basic things. First of which, that this one who is announced and this one who is now born is the fulfillment of all that the covenant before had embodied. He is, in fact, really the embodiment of that covenant. As Mary and Zacharias look to the coming Christ, they see all the promises of God found lodged in Him. And now Luke takes us to that moment when the sign and seal of that very covenant is applied to the antitype, to the one to whom that covenant sign always looked. 
The covenant was personified in Christ. And now this Christ is initiated, as it were, into the ritual and ceremonial aspects of that covenant. You see how profound this is. If we're paying attention to Luke at this moment, we'll see here that this is a moment that requires our greatest concentration and gravity. But more than that, friend, as you look at this text, in verse 21 we have a moment. A moment that we can think of in two different ways. We have a moment, of course, in which all of the covenant, all that has gone before is found lodged in Christ. Yea, and amen in Him. And so we find here that this sign that belonged to the old covenant finds its fullness, even as the sign is applied to Him. But also as we look at this text, we'll see here too that this is something that Christ Himself enters into. In other words, it's a sign and a seal that says something about Christ. But it's also a sign and a seal that says something to Christ. There's a typological aspect to it, a a foreshadowing aspect that we can't miss. But neither can we miss the fact that this is something that Christ himself undergoes. And what I want us to do in in the course of these two Lord's Days is to take up those two questions. What does this moment and circumcision itself say about Christ? And then God willing next Lord's Day take up the question, and what does this sign and seal say to Christ as he reflects on it? And so first of all, the question is, what does this sign and seal say of Christ? And as I've said before, as we've looked through Luke's gospel, we should expect a very simple answer to that. Well, friend, circumcision from its institution indicated Christ. Circumcision from its institution always indicated Christ. And I want us to see that under three headings this morning. I want us to see this, first of all, as it holds out Christ as the one who is promised. Then, as circumcision shows for us both propitiation and the procurement of redemption. And so, first of all, that heading, the promise. How is it that circumcision sets before us Christ? Now, as you're looking at Luke 2.21, you'll note here that the Gospel writer tells us very pointedly, it is at the moment of his circumcision that Christ is named. Now, it would be wrong for us to spend too much time to rehearse what we said before about the name of Christ. But friend, you remember what we did say on that occasion. Christ has named this, this name Jesus, Jehovah saves, or even more directly, Jehovah the Savior is named such, of course, because the name ultimately finds its fullness in Christ and in Him alone. Though others were named Joshua before, that, of course, is the Hebrew of Jesus. Yet in Jesus, the fullness of that name is brought to us. And Luke tells us very pointedly, unlike Matthew, that it's at the moment of circumcision that the name is applied. Now, friend, isn't that striking? The Gospel writer would have us know at this moment, that the name Jesus, Jehovah the Savior, is proclaimed at the moment that the sign and seal of the covenant of grace of the old covenant is applied. Yes, I know it was quite common. John had his name given to him at circumcision. But for Christ, certainly it takes on unique significance. Certainly it's a unique thing. Certainly it has some profoundity that others lacked. 
Because here you have everything that Abraham looked for. Everything that all of those who were of faith in the Old Covenant looked for. Here you have the sign applied. And in the application of the sign, the proclamation of His name. Jehovah the Savior. Jehovah the Savior. You see, friend, in a way, this moment shows us that Christ Himself is the embodiment of the covenant of grace. He is Jehovah the Savior. And everything that circumcision looked toward indicated to Him. I want us to see that briefly through various lenses. First of all, I want us to see it through circumcision itself. Now, friend, we read from Genesis 17 the institution of the sacrament. And it's important for us to understand that this is a sacrament that belongs to the covenant of grace. There is one covenant of grace. And in Genesis 17, you have the renewal of that covenant. And how do we know that this is one covenant of grace? Well, just take for a moment what the Apostle argues in Romans 4. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Now, what was that a sign of? The Apostle tells us, a seal of the righteousness of faith. That is what circumcision indicated. It was a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. This is Romans 4. Which he had... Yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. To Abraham, what was circumcision? The apostle tells us under no uncertain terms. It was a sign and a seal of righteousness that would come only by grace through faith. That's what you have in Genesis 17. Now what else do you have? Well, friends, that righteousness that comes to Abraham is in fullness the righteousness that we as believers have in Christ. Know what the Apostle goes on to say, Romans 4, 24 and 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone that was imputed to him, this righteousness. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You know what the Apostle is saying here? The very same righteousness that you read of that Abraham possessed, he goes on to say, you in the new covenant possess that as well. If you are looking to Christ as Abraham was. And so when you think of circumcision, friend, you need to be thinking about Christ. And righteousness by grace through faith found only in Christ. That is what you have in Genesis 17. Always pointing us there as a sign and seal of the one covenant of grace. But secondly, friend, I want you to notice too. That not only does this renewal of the covenant of grace, if you will... Show us these things. But even the promise that is made there, very pointedly, looks primarily to Christ. I want you to think back to our reading in Galatians 3 just for a moment. Know what the Apostle says there. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now the Apostle is going to make a case based on the singular word seed. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many. But as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This covenant, he goes on to say, was confirmed before of God in Christ. What's striking, friend, here is that in this text, as you have circumcision showing us, showing us that there would be one family through whom Messiah would come, the apostle makes a very clear argument. The seed to whom the promise was made. Friend, it was singular. It was Christ. It was Christ. 
He was the only seed that was really in view. And note how he says, as he refers back to the renewal of the covenant of grace, he says that this was a covenant confirmed before of God in Christ. You see, friend, if you were in the old covenant, you were to be one who looked at these things and saw the Messiah prefigured. From Genesis 17 and on, you should see circumcision as it's indicating Christ. As it's setting before you the one seed that was promised. And so, friend, when you see Christ here circumcised, what do you have? You have both the prophetic and the sacramental word coalescing, crying in the naming of Christ that he was the one in whom the covenant of grace is made. He is the one who is really the embodiment of all of that grace that the people of God looked for and hoped for. He was, in other words, proclaimed at this moment that he was the covenant of the people given for a light to the Gentiles. He himself, beloved, as you look at this moment, is set forward as the embodiment of everything that you have in the old covenant administration. Everything that circumcision looked to, everything, all the grace that was hoped for by the patriarchs, all of these things we find even in this moment, Christ proclaimed as the embodiment of them all. Every promise, every saving grace, only to be found in Him. All the promises of God, yea and amen, only in Him. And you see, beloved, as you look at this text, at this moment that seems so simple, you have the old covenant touching, as it were, the one to whom it always looked, the one upon whom it was founded, the one through whom it received every benefit. You have this moment where they meet. Oh, beloved, what does this tell us? If he is really the embodiment of the covenant, here, is the, here are the things that you are to expect only from him. There is only found in him grace to deliver from wrath. Note how Zacharias puts it. He says that the people of God might, through Christ, serve the Lord without fear. That's Luke one seventy two. Without fear any longer. The enmity has been destroyed through this one who is the embodiment of the covenant. The covenant that was given. Grace from wrath. But then also, friend, note here, grace also from sin. Zacharias goes on, In holiness and righteousness before him, that is before the Lord, they would stand all the days of our life. And why is that? Matthew tells us, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You see, friend, when you come to this moment and you see Christ circumcised, You see the sign and the prophetic word coalescing to say, if you seek anything from the covenant of grace, it must only be found in Him. Every every sacramental sign, the sacrifices, every ceremony looked only to Him and and hold Him forward as as really the embodiment of the covenant of grace. And so friend, you are to see Him here as a fountain of grace. You are to see Him as the only fountain of grace. Do you require mercy this morning? Do you require quickening grace this morning? 
Well, friend, even in this moment, you're told, find it only in him. Only in him. And the argument, of course, is then for us to come to him. You see, friend, circumcision could hold out no better thing, no better source for the people of God to launch their hope in than Christ. Because there was none other. What was true for them is true for us. Only, friend, should we look for grace through Christ. But that brings us to a second point, And that is propitiation. As we've looked through Luke's gospel, friend, you'll notice time and again that Luke gives us the humiliation of Christ. He labors, in one sense, to set before us the humiliation that Christ would go through. He emphasizes these points in a way that, for instance, Matthew doesn't. And so it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that we come to the circumcision of Christ only in this gospel. You see, friend, as you look throughout the scriptures, and even as you look throughout the history of the world, circumcision was regarded as a shameful thing. A humbling thing. I mean, you don't even really have to go outside of scripture, do you? Look just for a moment at Exodus 4. How did Zephora think about circumcision? Zephora took a sharp stone, says, says Exodus 4, and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he that is the Lord, let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. You see, friend, to the world, circumcision was a shameful thing. And our divines of old have even argued that in one sense they were not entirely wrong. It was intended in its institution to include with it the ideas of shame and the ideas of pain. You see, the idea is is that in this, as one writer writes, in circumcision you have signified that the whole man deserved to be separated forever from the communion of God and all his saints with exquisite and intolerable torments both of body and soul. In other words, what the older writers would tell us is that as you looked at circumcision and you saw its blood and its pain, you were supposed to see in that moment a prefigurement, if you will, of eternal damnation. You were supposed to see that really man deserved, the whole man deserved to be cut off. He wholly deserved to be in blood. He wholly deserved to be in an exquisite pain because he departed from his God. And so, friend, as we look at this, we see here that as just as we saw circumcision looked to Christ at its institution and looked to Christ as the embodiment of the covenant, we're also supposed to see here that Christ's blood and sufferings as covenant mediator were also prefigured here. I want us to see that just through a few scripture texts. First of all, friend, as we're looking here to see Christ set forth, suffering vicariously for his people, I want you to notice that throughout the Old Covenant, this idea of death and being cut off was always prefigured. In fact, it even goes back to what we thought about in our Sabbath school hour. You see the bloodletting of Genesis 3.21, where there God makes coats of animal skin to clothe Adam and Eve. And really, from there you have the institution of sacrifices. Edwards writes at this moment, he says, It is likely that these skins with which Adam and Eve were clothed were the skins of their sacrifices. Our first parents who were naked were clothed at the expense of life. Beasts were slain in order to afford them clothing. So doth Christ to afford clothing to our naked souls. 
The idea was is that even in the ceremonial law, you were supposed to see this idea of death and being cut off. And you saw it most vibrantly, perhaps, in the sacrificial system. And that beginning, of course, not with Moses, but beginning even from the Garden of Eden. And so we shouldn't be surprised that other ceremonies, too, have behind their, idea, behind their foundation this idea of propitiation. You see, friend, in circumcision, as Herman Vitzius writes, we're supposed to see that the Messiah was to be cut off from the land of the living in order to, in order to the preservation of his body, the church. Just as in the carnal circumcision, a part of the body was to be cut away, that the whole man might not be cut off from the people. The sense is that even in circumcision, you have a ceremonial representation of that idea. Man deserved to die. But he must be looking for propitiation if he is to come to God. He must be looking to one who would suffer vicariously to bring him to God. But it's even more clear than that. Why is it that we see circumcision in this light? Well, friend, we see it because that's precisely how the scriptures carry it to us. You see, the idea of being cut off, that's the very word from which we get circumcision, is all throughout the scriptures. And note perhaps its most famous usage. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Isaiah 53, the 8th verse. The word cut off there is the same root from which we get circumcision. You could write, you could translate freely, he was circumcised from the land of the living. In fact, this idea that circumcision had a punitive aspect is all throughout our Psalter. Just to give you another example, Psalm 118. Here the writer says, All nations come past me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. That's the word for circumcised. They compassed me about. Yeah, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Again, the word circumcised. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Again, the same word. You see, the idea of being cut off that is really fundamental to circumcision was something that was commonly applied to those under judgment. The Messiah in Isaiah 53, the enemies of God in Psalm 118. To be cut off was to be under wrath. To be cut off was to be under the punitive judgment of the Lord. And so, friend, when you come to circumcision, what do you see? You see one who is cut off, or really, as Vitzius writes helpfully, a part of one that is cut off, that the body might be saved, that the body might not be cut off from the people. And friend, here, of course, you have a lively picture of Christ, a lively prefigurement of the one who would be cut off that his body of the church might be saved. You see, friend, even in circumcision, you have the anticipation of one who would bear the curse of the covenant, one who would be cut off, that his people might be spared. And beloved, when you see then Christ circumcised, when you see him named Jesus, you see here again the coalescence of the prophetic and the sacramental word. Here declaring that this one who would redeem his people at the cost of his own blood had come. He was the one who was to be cut off. Christ bore in his body that promise. He would be cut off that his people might live. 
You see, friend, even as the Old Covenant believer looked through circumcision in the Old Covenant, they were to do so by faith, looking to one, the Messiah, who would fall under the wrath of God, that they might be delivered. In fact, when you think of the millions of children crying and bleeding, anticipating this Christ, all they were doing were they were awaiting the one who would undergo not those torments alone, but even the torments of the second death, that they might live. And finally, friend, you have your thirdly procurement. You have Christ, of course, set forward in circumcision as the embodiment of the whole covenant. You have him set forward as the one who would be slain and cut off for his people, that they might live. But thirdly, you have, of course, Christ set before us as the one who would procure the grace that circumcision prefigured and really set forward as and signed and sealed. You see, of course, circumcision shows us man's great need for regeneration. But what it also shows us, too, in this moment is that the only one who could do that work, that could cut off the foreskins of man's hearts, must be God. Moses told her this much. The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might that thou mayest live. Note how, how Moses describes this kind of circumcision. It is performed only by Jehovah. You see, friend, in circumcision you have the child who is impotent, can do nothing, and one must do the work. One must perform the ritual for them. And you see, friend, in regeneration, what Moses is saying is very clear. It is God alone who can circumcise your heart. But the Apostle says the very same thing in Colossians 2. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, speaking of Christ, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. James Ferguson, helpfully at that point, interprets that for us by the inward power of the Spirit of Christ. You see, friend, in circumcision you were seeing Ritually, ceremonially, that one must be circumcised in heart and another must do it for you. And here we're told precisely who that is. It must be God in Christ. God in Christ alone who would remove the foreskin of the heart. Who removed that which would separate them from God. And really bring them to God and give them a lively heart, a heart of flesh. And so, friend, when you see Christ circumcised in the Gospels, you have a ceremonial representation of the fact that here, and only through him, could man expect that which circumcision held forth, this regeneration. How, in other words, would one stand as Zechariah's promises in holiness and righteousness before the Lord? How, in other words, would one become a new man after which God after which they would be formed in the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. It would only be through this Christ who would procure this grace. And you see, friend, this is precisely how the Apostle describes the new birth, isn't it? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. The sense is, friend, the new life of the believer is found only in him. And ceremonially, ritually, and really, circumcision pointed to that simple fact. One must be circumcised 
by Christ. One must have his circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, if they are to be truly born again. The circumcision is likened also by Christ to just hearing the voice of the Son of God. Friend, it is only his voice that will do this work. We are utterly impotent to the task. And as the sacrament is applied to Christ, in this moment it simply says that this is the one who is always prefigured. This is the one who is always anticipated, who alone did and could ever circumcise the hearts of men. Friend, as we close, just a few words of application. In this moment we have here the idea that the hope of the godly of all ages and in all things consisted only in Christ. Everything that circumcision ever held out to the godly was to be found only in him, to whom now the sign is applied. Friend, it was true for the patriarchs and it is true for us today. Do you hope only for good through Christ? Do you hope only are all of your hopes from God only through this Christ? You see, friend, that is precisely the problem, isn't it? That the apostle addresses in the Galatians. There were men who didn't. They thought of another way to secure something from Jehovah. And in fact, they even turned circumcision into another kind of Christ. They made circumcision a way of making access to God without Christ. You see, friend, they didn't have then the faith of Abraham, who took this as a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. They didn't have the faith of those who looked to Christ through the sacrament and saw one who alone could be the fountain of grace, saw one who alone could be the propitiation for his people, and who alone could apply the grace of God to their hearts. They didn't do that. And friend, there are too many in our churches today who are in the same case. No, they won't, they won't make circumcision the sum total of their righteousness with God. But they'll make something else. They'll make their own church attendance. They'll make their own attendance at communion seasons, their baptism perhaps. They'll make their good works those things that will draw them to Christ, or draw them to Jehovah, but without Christ. And friend, even in circumcision here we're reminded Even here we're reminded, you seek any good from God, it must only be through him. Through him. And beloved, if you do see Christ by faith here, see here that, friend, he is declared prophetically and even sacramentally in this moment for your good, for all of your good. Everything, friend, that the covenant of grace holds out to you is embodied in Christ for you. He was given as a covenant for you. All things promised in scripture to the believing are yours. Yea and amen in Christ. Even this moment, friend, should be a boon of comfort to the godly. Here the sign and everything that it held forth to the godly tell us very plainly. You find it in him. You find it in him even now. And so come to Christ. Come to Christ, friend. Come to him as he holds out to you all the grace that is offered in the book of God. 
come to Christ. Friend, as he's fulfilled every ceremony that would indicate the Messiah. Come to Christ as he presently stands. Circumcising the hearts of sinners. Come to Christ as he invites you to himself even this morning. Amen.